Morning again. I think I've got a little power now. I went back there uh, and not only were the batteries dead, there were no batteries in, in it. So there's a sermon illustration there, I know, somewhere in the future. Um, can't operate without the power. So uh, Brent helped me get some new batteries, and I said, okay, I'm good to go. And he said, yes, but your knees are still bad. So that is true. But I do have batteries. What a gorgeous day today, the last couple of days. Fred said it's going to be up in the 80s next couple of days. A, a brief respite before winter hits. Thank you, Lord. We've been blessed to have uh, Paula's sister here with us for a few days. She came while I was down in Nashville and um, been here a few more days. She'll, she'll leave after lunch today, so we're glad that she is here. Maybe some others are visiting with us, I don't know, but um, thank you. Thank you for being here. You know, on one of the last flights that I took, it may have been actually the flight when we came here back in, in March um, to, um, to join you guys. Uh, I remember the flight attendants as we we sat down and everybody stowed away their luggage and some people have got way too big of a carry-on and trying to shove it into the overhead bin so they don't have to pay the $30, $35, you know, baggage fee. Everybody finally gets seated and we sit down and we're about to, to start taxiing and the flight attendants start going through their safety procedures. You know what I'm talking about? They, uh, a, a lady stands up and they say that... Um, Here's your seat belt, and this is how you fasten it. You click it, and you can unclick it, and you can tighten it up. And, and if there's a sudden drop in cabin pressure, all the masks will drop. And be sure and put one on your face before you help anybody else. And here's how you can tighten it. And for the first time in a long time, I found myself actually listening to all of this stuff. And I began to look around. And they say, your seat can be used as a flotation device in case of a water landing. That's comforting, right? So I'm sitting here, and I'm actually listening to this, and I look around. Guys have got newspapers up. You know, they, you can't even see their faces. They're, they're reading. People are flipping through the in-flight magazines. Everybody's got earbuds in, listening to their music or a podcast. No one is paying attention, but maybe me. No one is paying attention to any of this stuff. And I got to thinking to myself, this is pretty important stuff, especially if you have to use that uh, seat as a flotation device. But it's something that we hear so often. If you fly with any frequency at all, you hear this every time. It's the same thing every time. And every now and then, they'll, they'll try to do something funny to try to catch your attention because nobody pays attention to it. It's just the same old routine that you've heard time and time and time again. And I appreciate, Mike, I appreciate your comments. The last song, or the next to the last song that, that Steve led, I love to tell the story, the old, old story. And it gets me to thinking, is that really what the gospel sounds like to us? The same old story again and again and again. 
You tell your children something, you know, and they're like, I know that. You've told me a hundred times. I know that already. I fear sometimes that when we come together as a body of Christians, that sometimes it just seems like that old, old story is, is just that. It's, it's just an old, old story. And I've heard it so many times before. There was a man named John Currier. He was found guilty of murder 1949. He was only about 16 years old, and he was out. He was, had been drinking. He was drunk, and he had a squirrel rifle, and he shot, and he killed a man. He did not even remember it happening. This was in 1949. John Currier was sentenced to life in prison. About 19, almost 20 years later, he was working on a... Um, a farm just outside of Nashville, Tennessee, close to where I grew up. He was mucking stables and, and helping clean out. He'd been doing that for several years. And a parole officer reviewed his case, looked at everything. He, he was only 16 years old when, when this occurred. Um, it was not malicious. It was really accidental. They paroled him. They sent a letter to the prison saying, uh, after almost 20 years, uh, you've done enough time. You are free, free to go. You're a free man. For whatever reason, and this is up to some speculation, no one ever told John Currier that his sentence had been commuted. There was some word that maybe the, the, the people that owned the farm and the stables really thought he was a good worker and they didn't want to lose him and no one ever told John Currier that he was a free man. Ten more years went by. Ten. And he is in prison, working, prison, working. A federal parole officer found out that he had been set free but he was still in prison. He goes to the prison tells John Currier, you are a free man and have been for the last 10 years. John Currier had been set free, but no one told him. No one told him that he was a free man, and he served another 10 years in prison. Christians have been entrusted with the most important message in the world. And yet many of us never deliver that message to those who have the sentence of death in themselves. We never deliver it. If you believe in statistics, the latest statistic that I've come across says that 97%, 97% of Christians have never shared their faith. 97% of Christians have never shared the gospel with someone else and have never led someone to Christ. That's hard to imagine. The Apostle Paul tells us in our text this morning what I think is how the gospel should work. It's the natural, normal flow of the gospel. The gospel comes to you. The gospel comes to you the gospel then works in you, and then the gospel goes out from you, okay? It comes to you, it works in you, and then it goes out from you. First 
Thessalonians chapter 1, that's our text this morning. Turn your Bibles there, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We're going to read the entire chapter, 10 verses. The word of the Lord says this, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you, mentioning you in our prayers. We continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers loved by God, we know that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. In spite of severe suffering, you welcomed the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. The word of the Lord. So let me tell you a little bit about this church. It's a, it's a young church, a little town called Thessalonica. Paul hadn't planned on going there. Paul was trying to take the gospel into Asia. Kevin read us the text this morning out of Acts chapter 16. Paul was always looking for a place to go where the gospel had never been. He always wanted to break new ground to tell people who'd never heard the message. He's wanting to take the gospel into Asia, but as we read in Acts chapter 16, the Holy Spirit wouldn't let him do it. Now, I've often wondered what, what that looked like. Um, how did the Holy Spirit prevent him from going into Asia. And, and I wish that I were so, so in tune with the Spirit, so much led by the power of the Spirit that, that I would be able to discern that type of thing. I'm, I'm working. I'm working on that. I'm working. I haven't gotten there yet, but I'm, I'm, I'm working in that area of my life. I want to be led by the power of the Spirit. Paul was, was so in tune, it seems like, that he knew that the Holy Spirit was preventing him from from going in, into Asia. And when that happened, Paul got a vision. And there was a vision, a man from Macedonia begging him, come and help us, come and help us. And so Paul took that to be a word from the Lord that that's what he was supposed to do. So he's not even supposed to be in Thessalonica, but as he is journeying on his way, it's about 100 miles west of where he currently is. On his way to Macedonia, he stops in Thessalonica. Now, if I had, 
come to the conclusion that God really, really wanted me to go to Macedonia, knowing me, knowing how I travel, I'd have filled up the gas tank and I'd have headed to Macedonia. Nothing going to stop me, right? Blinders on, uh, we'll stop to gas up, get a bottle of water, and we're hitting the road. Paul, as he is going to Macedonia, there, that's about a 100-mile trip. He, he makes multiple stops. One of those stops is Thessalonica. I'd be thinking, man, I'm, I'm going to gas this chariot up, and I'm heading to Macedonia. What does Paul do? For three consecutive Sabbaths, he goes to the synagogue, and you know what he does? He preaches Jesus. He preaches Jesus to those people in Thessalonica. And the scripture tells us that some, some of the Jews believed and some of the Greeks believed and not a few prominent women. I think that that's very interesting that, that Paul tells us that. There were some very prominent women who also believed. And so in three weeks' time, Paul starts a church. He plants a church in Thessalonica. And it's about a year later that Paul writes this letter to them to encourage them. Notice what he says. The gospel comes to you. The gospel comes to, the gospel has to come to all of us. Look at verse four. Brothers, loved by God, we know that God has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words. See, most of us here in the room were, were raised up going to church, right? Our mama, our daddy, our grandmama, they, they took us to church. Maybe some of you came to know the Lord later in life, but for the most part, most of us have grown up going, have grown up going to church. We've always known this story. We've always heard the good news about Jesus. But at some point, that gospel has to come to you. And notice what he says. Our gospel didn't come simply with words. Now, the gospel does have to come with words, right? It's got to come with words. Sometime years ago, somebody came up with this neat little pithy saying that says um, something like, your, Bible, your life might be the only Bible some people ever read. You've heard that saying? It really sounds cool, doesn't it? What that says to us is that we've, we better live a good life in front of people because our lives might be the only Bible someone reads. Someone also said something like, uh, preach the gospel every day, and if necessary, use words. Again, there's this idea that we've got to live such a good life in front of people that they'll see that there's something different about us. But let me ask you this. How many people are beating your door down saying, oh, please, tell me why you're so happy. Tell me why you have so much joy. Oh, please, Rodney, tell me why you, uh, your life is so different than everyone else's. Would you please tell me? Has anybody ever knocked on your door and asked you to tell them that? No. No. It is necessary for us to use words. We cannot live just a good life in front of people. We need to live a good life. Don't, don't get me wrong. 
We need to live a good life in front of people. Be a good ambassador for Jesus. But we've got to start using words to actively tell people the good news, to tell people why I'm so happy, to tell them why I have such joy, to tell them why I make different choices than a lot of people around me. We've got to start using words. But he says, the gospel came to you not simply with words, but look what else it came with. It came with power and with the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction. The power is not in any words that I might share, only if I'm sharing the words of God. That's where the power is. But it says this gospel didn't just come to you with words. It came to you with power and with the power of the Holy Spirit. He says, what you heard from us was convincing because of what you saw in us. You saw our words and our lives matching up. And so that was very powerful to you. It was very convincing. Didn't just come with words, but it did come with words, but also with the power and the Holy Spirit. So the gospel has to come to you. And then secondly, it's got to it's got to change you. It's got to work in you. Look at verse 6. It says you became imitators of us and of the Lord in spite of severe suffering. And you welcomed the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. So you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Fast forward down to verse 9. For they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned from idols to serve the true and living God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus. So after the gospel came to them, it says it changed them. It changed them. Something began to happen inside of them. It says they turned from the idols that they used to worship to now worshiping the true and living God. Do you know what the Bible calls that? It's called repentance. Repentance. When you change the direction that you were going, the, the ways in which you were living, and you turn from that and you turn to God. That's what the Bible calls repentance. And that's what we see in them. We begin to see this change, this change of heart, this change of mind, this change of life. They weren't perfect, but they, but they began to change. You know, there's no greater joy that I think that I've ever experienced in my life than when I've shared the gospel and, and, and someone has responded to it. And then you begin to see changes in their life. There's no greater joy that I've ever experienced than that. Um, to, to, to see the Spirit of God moving and working in the heart and in the life of someone so that they'll make changes. They'll sometimes change a lot of things in their life in order to follow Jesus. But look at it, what else verse 10 says. They were anticipating, waiting for his son from heaven to return. This anticipation. We used to sing a song in church, Oh, I want to see him look upon his face, there to sing forever of his saving grace. You know, a lot of the Christians in the first century, 
They fully expected that Jesus was going to return in their lifetime. What we read about in Scripture, about their anxiousness, their eagerly awaiting. In fact, Paul had to tell the Thessalonians, go to work, because many of them had quit their jobs and they were just waiting on Jesus. And he said, no, no, unless a man works, he he can't eat. Uh, you got to get back to work. you got to live every day. Um, for Christ expecting his return, but you got to work like he's not coming back yet. But there began to be a change in their heart, a change in their mind. They began to anticipate the return of Jesus. Uh, we were studying in 1 John in our small groups on Sunday nights, and we were in chapter 3 last week. And it starts out, how great is the love that the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that's what we are. We're children of God. But I want, to, I want you to see this. I want to read it to you. 1 John chapter 3. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. Look at this. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. One of the beautiful things about heaven is that we're going to be able to look upon the face of God and live, (laughs) and live. You remember when when Moses uh, talked to God and he said, God, show me your glory. We talked about this. Was it last week? Oh, Lord, show me your glory. And God said, "I'll, I'll, I'll let you see the back of me. And I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock because no man can see God and live. But yet, when Jesus appears, John says, we will be like him and we will see him. See him as he is. So when the gospel comes to you, it begins to change you. There's this anticipation, an anticipation of wanting to see Jesus, wanting to be with him. Notice the submission in verse 6. He says, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. Paul was fond of saying, follow me as I follow Christ. Imitate me as I am imitating Christ. Folks, if you want to change the world, if you want to change your world, just preach the gospel. Tell someone the gospel. I believe that the local church is the hope of the world. I I don't think that's an overstatement. The local church is the hope of the world. Who else has the message of the good news? The world around us doesn't have it. Many of them don't know it. More and more, you know, young people today don't identify as anything. When I was a kid growing up, everybody was something. You may not have been to church in 10 years, but, but you were something. You know, your, your grandmama took you to the, to the Church of Christ or the Baptist Church, or you were Presbyterian or, or a Catholic. And, you know, maybe you weren't practicing very much, but, but you were something. There are more and more people, especially young people today, who don't identify as anything. They're called the nuns. 
not like a Catholic nun, the N-O-N-E-S, the nuns, because they have no affiliation whatsoever. They're just nothing. And so those of us who want to change that, those of us who do know God, the Holy Spirit is in us, working in us, changing us. If we want to change our world, we've got, we just got to preach the gospel. Tell someone the good news. Verse 6 also talks about celebration. You became imitators. In spite of severe suffering, you, where am I? You welcomed the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. One of the great paradoxes of the Christian life, it seems to me, is that even in the midst of severe suffering, you can be joyful. Isn't that amazing? In the midst of severe suffering, you can still have joy. You see, we confuse happiness and joy uh, in, our, in our country, in our Western civilization. We, we have this joy and happiness thing all kind of messed up. The, the English word happening, uh, happiness, comes from the root word happening. And so basically, if good things are happening to us, then we're happy. If bad things are happening to us, we're no longer happy, right? We're sad. But joy is something completely different than that. Joy has nothing to do with our circumstances of what's happening to us. But joy is rooted in the knowledge of our salvation. Knowing that Jesus died for us, he became a sin offering for us. That gives us joy. And so matter, no matter what happens to us, we can still be joyful. It's one of the great paradoxes of the Christian walk. The early Christians, some of them were enduring extreme suffering, and yet they were happy. Paul and Silas were, were in prison in, in Philippi, and what, what were they doing? Oh, nobody knows the trouble I've seen. You know, they were singing, but they weren't singing that. They were singing hymns of praise to God at midnight. You see, when the Holy Spirit comes to you, when the gospel penetrates you, it changes you. Something begins to happen. All right, we've got to keep going. The gospel comes to you. It, it works in you and it changes you, and now it's got to go out from you. It's got to go out from you. Look at verse 8. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. The root word there in Greek for, for rang out is where we get the word echo. The word echoed from them. It, it uh, reverberated from them. Because when something is happening inside of you, you cannot help but want to tell people about it. You can't help it. It's, it's, it's crazy, but we will, we will tell people of a great restaurant that we've eaten at. We'll say, man, you, you've got to try this place. I mean, it is really good. 
Or maybe we'll see a new TV show or a new movie will come out, and we'll, we'll watch it, and, and it's like, man, you have got to go see this. I mean, this is a great, one of the best movies I've seen in years. We have no problem telling people about a new restaurant or um, a new movie or a new album that's come out, Acapella 40, that, that you love to hear. We have no problem telling people about that kind of stuff. But what about the good news that Jesus saves you, that he's taken your place, that you don't have to live that way anymore? You don't have to be a slave to sin. You've been set free already. And I'm here to tell you, man, the gospel has got to ring out. It's got to echo. They didn't just come into a relationship with Christ because of the gospel and say, oh, thank you, Jesus, and then leave it at that. I'm saved. Thank you, Jesus. No, they were saved people who wanted to see more people saved. That's how the gospel spread. These new babies in Christ who had received this message couldn't help but let that echo reverberate by the way they lived, but also by the words they spoke. Couldn't help it. It was just so good. So good. There are three ways that Christians, I think, can respond. And then I'll leave this with you. How can we respond to our world? The first one is we can isolate, just have nothing to do with anyone, isolate ourselves. That's sort of that monastic idea that we've got to separate from the world and just sort of, you know, isolate. Secondly, we can insulate, just surround ourselves with other Christians. And that, that's a good thing, okay? I think your closest, dearest friends and companions ought to be Christians, ought to be children of God, because that's how we sharpen one another, we encourage one another, we love and spur each other on. So um, you need to have a, a good close circle of Christian friends, but we can insulate ourselves to the point where we don't come in contact or refuse to engage with people who are in the world. And that's not what God wants from us. He says you're to be in the world, but not of the world. You've got to be in the world. How else are you, are you going to be salt and light if you build a monastery and retreat? So we shouldn't isolate, and we don't need to insulate. What we've got to do is start to penetrate the world with the gospel, with the good news. And all it has to be is a small, short conversation, opening the door to say, do you have any spiritual beliefs? Most everybody's got a spiritual belief, don't they? About something. Well, I believe this or that. Well, how, how did you come to that belief? Now you've, you've engaged someone in a conversation. We're going to talk more about that as I begin to do some discipleship training, but I, I just want to keep planting the seed with you. If you want to be salt, and I know you do, if you want to be light, and I know that you do, We've got to penetrate, penetrate our, our world with the good news. It's not as hard as we're making it. It's not as hard as we're making it.
Let's go to God in prayer. Our God, our Father, we love you. Father, we have been so blessed this morning to be in your presence, to be with those brothers and sisters who have confessed your name, who believe in you, who trust in you. And so, Father, I'm asking you, we, we, we already know it's your will. I'm asking you, Father, to give us courage to increase our faith, to give us boldness, to go out and to penetrate our world with the good news that Jesus Christ saves. Father, people are walking around with the sentence of death, and we have the message that they can be free. Help us, Father, to tell it, to ring that message out. Father, we want to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness, knowing that everything we need will be added to us. Help us to believe. Help us to trust. We pray in the name of Jesus.